Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Coach Beard loves Joe Walsh, then join this group of four women, handpicked by the man himself, and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. This time we're going to be talking The Miracle of Castel di Sangro, which I think means Castle of Blood, which I'm into. A question for all of us. Which sports person or team in what season would you choose to write a book about and get to follow them around to do so? Andrea? Um, I would do uh, Billie Jean King, who she did the Battle of the Sexes, where she played a man in tennis and won. I think it was 1973 that it happened. I'll trust you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just would love to hear what that was actually like for her and what she went through and what she experienced from it and what the feeling was like. And I did actually find a book of hers, but it felt like it was much more of a like later in life, like looking back at everything. Like, retrospective. I, yeah. I want like what actually really happened there. Cause I'm sure she's sugarcoating some of it now. You know what I mean? Like, which understandably, it's not like she's supposed to be like holding a grudge, but I just feel like that was such a big deal. I mean, there's so right. There's so many men that said it about, you know, um, Williams, the Williams sisters. Like I could beat her. I could beat her. And you know, you couldn't like. Interestingly enough, the real reason that women's and men's sports got segregated, not because it was to be fair on the women. It's because the women started beating the men. Marita, any particular team or season? Oh yes. Well, so being from Oregon uh, for the longest time, the only pro team we've had has has been the Portland Trailblazers, uh, which is basketball for your benefit, Michaela. Thank you. (laughs) So I would follow the 76, 77 Trailblazers because I was alive, but just barely Um, too young to remember (laughs) their championship season. And we haven't had one since. So I would love to go back and relive that glory first, like firsthand. That, That would be my team. I feel like Jamie, when he's like, what even are Denver Broncos right now? So relatable. Bex, your choice. Okay, so actually after Andrea spoke, it gave me another option. So now I'm going to, I'm torn between two. You can have two. Oh, thank you. The 2004 Boston Red Sox. Mm. I mean, when they you know, reverse the curse. It, oh, yeah. that That's a given. But then, because I wasn't thinking necessarily about individual people, I remember when I was a kid, um, and I don't do well with, like, pronunciations here, but Manon Rayom, Manon Man Rayom yeah. was a woman who played for the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey team. Ice hockey. Ice hockey goalies are the best. So excited when I was a kid to see a woman playing professional sport uh, on a team that had in a sport that was predominantly or exclusively men, really. And so I think it would be really cool to follow her on that season that that she played. And even if it was I don't even remember if it was a whole season, it might have just been partial, but like just what that experience was like. So I'm torn between those two. (laughs) It was just in the news here that the Portland Winterhawks, which is a, a lower level hockey team just drafted a, a, a teenage girl uh in their draft she's a goalie too so Woo-woo. ice Big hockey goalie is the best go hockey <laughs> I'm, glad you're sta- I'm really glad you're stating what sports they are because <laughs> all right michaela sports master over here what, what what would you choose knowing as much about sports as i do <laughs> I actually chose Sonny from Tottenham because when I watched the documentary, 
he made me cry because one of his fans came over from Korea and was like standing outside the stadium, greeting all the people coming to the stadium, like bowing at them. And I was like crying my eyes out. So I think I'd follow him. Yeah. So probably Sonny from Tottenham. I like that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. What we've already said, we're doing the miracle of Castel de Sangro. Bex, you have an introduction of the book for us. Yes. As as usual, I steal it from the back of the book. Um, this is from the paperback edition with the blue cover, not the one that uh, Beard was seen reading in the episode. So I don't know if it's identical to what you have. Let me check. All right. Yeah. Follow along and let me know. This says, Master Storyteller Joe McGinnis travels to Italy to cover the unlikely success of a ragtag minor league soccer team and delivers a brilliant and utterly unforgettable story of the life in an off-the-beaten-track Italian village. When Joe McGinnis sets out for the remote Italian village of Castel di Sangro one summer, he merely intends to spend a season with the village's soccer team. It says soccer. That's how you know it's the American version. Yeah. (laughs) which only weeks before had miraculously reached the second highest ranking professional league in the land. But soon he finds himself embroiled with an absurd yet irresistible cast of characters, including the team's owner described by the New York times as straight out of a Mario Puzo novel and coach Osvaldo Giacconi, whose only English word is the one he uses to describe himself bulldozer. As the righteous edge-of-your-seat season unfolds, McGinnis develops a deepening bond with the team, their village and its people, and their country. Traveling with the Miracle team from the isolated mountain region where Castel de Sangro is located to gritty towns as well as grand cities, McGinnis introduces us to an Italy that no tourist guidebook has ever described and comes away with what the LA Times calls a sad, funny, desolating, and inspiring story. For those of us who don't know, where in Ted Lasso did the book appear well this was in season three episode one smells like mean spirit and this is the first book we see appear in season three so we couldn't resist we had to do it right Mm -hmm. this is the moment where roy is talking to beard about the movie hoosiers and i'm not going to get into that too much now because we might cover it at some point but the film is loosely based on the story of a 1950s high school basketball team The two are also attempting to come up with a strategy for the team during the season, and they decide on 4-4-2, which is uh, basically like a back-to-basics positioning of the players, which I think is really funny uh, when you compare it to what they end up with when Ted decides on total football after the Amsterdam experience, right? So we go from 4-4-2 to total football, and that's like, Opposite ends of the spectrum Total for you. Opposite, yeah. <laughs> also, just quick trigger warning. Uh, Marita is going to be discussing murder a little bit, but it's not going to be extremely graphic from my understanding. So we just wanted to let you know she's going to go first and you can join us after if that's something you're worried about. Marita's going to do a murder podcast. Kick us off. <laughs> yeah, murder. Murder and betrayal. All right. So what I want to talk about in general is sort of the implications and how much trust is involved with bringing someone like Trent Krim in to follow your team for a year. To contextualize this, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Joe McGinnis, who's the author of Miracle. I'm just going to call the book Miracle from now on. Absolutely fair. (laughs) So Joe McGinnis wrote this book. It was very popular as a sports book when it came out, but he had quite a history and is a very complicated sort of person. So uh, I want to give credit to uh, one of our readers, Jeanette, whose Twitter handle is at Aquanetti. 
who was kind enough to point us to an article that was written by Joe McGinnis Jr., the author's son, who's also an author. And he wrote this article about his father after his father's passing. And it's worth reading. Uh, I don't know if any of y'all read it. It's it's yeah, very actually. bittersweet. Just this amazing description of both how loving his father was and how complicated he was as a person and like the ways that he failed his family and his kids, basically, in his quest for fame. So McGinnis was really complicated. Now, if we look at Miracle, it was written about the 1996-97 season, uh, and it came out in 1999. But Joe McGinnis was well-known a long time before that. He started off as a young newspaper columnist, and his first book was called The Selling of the President, 1968, and it was about the marketing of Nixon during his presidential campaign, his first one. And he went on to write some best-selling true crime books. And the most interesting from this perspective uh, is a book called Fatal Vision. And it's interesting because this this story is so wild. I kept going back, like, even this morning referencing, I'm like, this is Joe McGinnis, the same guy wrote these both, both these books. And it, and it is. Fatal Vision is written about the Jeffrey McDonald murder case. Uh, McDonald was an army officer and a surgeon in 1970 in Fort Bragg. And his wife and two young daughters, his pregnant wife and two young daughters, were brutally murdered, like bludgeoned repeatedly, stabbed with an ice pick, like this really horrific graphic murder in their home. And McDonald claimed that it was multiple intruders, like hippie-ish kind of stoner, right, had done it. And the word pig, in fact, was written in blood on the wall. It turned out it was his wife's blood. And this is important for the context of the book, because this was less than a year after the Tate-LaBianca murders. So it very much sort of reflected that. And whether or not it was actually hippie-ish people, or whether it was just a copycat to try to blame someone else for it is an issue of quite a bit of debate. So McDonald was home at the time of the murders, and injured, I'm air quoting here, and I realize that doesn't work very well on a podcast, um, <laughs> injured in the process, but he had considerably more superficial wounds than anyone else in his family, including, if I'm not mistaken, a single relatively shallow stab wound. And remember that this guy is a surgeon, right? So he would know how to... Um, you know where to put those stab wounds. If he wanted to. Yeah. Eventually, after years and a lot of legal machinations, he's charged and goes on trial for the murders. The trial starts in the summer of 1979, right? This is like nine years after the murders. So this is where Joe McGinnis comes in. McGinnis was already kind of famous for, for the book that he'd written. McDonald hires McGinnis to write a book about his innocence, right? I want you to write about the innocence. And so what McDonald wanted is he wanted like McGinnis to interview him. He wanted him to attend the trial and write this book all about his his innocence. And so he gave McGinnis like this incredible amount of access, like not just interviews, but they lived together in the same space. They hung out together. They worked out together, like drinking buddies sort of thing. McGinnis sat at the defense table during the trial. This is just an insane amount of access. Wow. But at some point of the trial, McGinnis decides that McDonald's actually guilty, but he doesn't let on. So McDonald gets convicted. And McGinnis starts writing him letters, and the contents of which are clearly intended to mislead McDonald, because McDonald had been found guilty, right? He's writing him in prison, right? He's telling him his trial wasn't fair, he was clearly innocent, that sort of thing in the letters that he's writing him. But if you look at, like, McGinnis's correspondence with his editor at the same time, it's so obvious that he's already changed his mind, because he, in talking to his editor, is trying to figure out how to not make McDonald look, and this is a quote, too loathsome too soon. He feels it'll like ruin the structure of his book, right? Wow. He writes this book that condemns McDonald as the murderer. And the way McDonald finds out 
is when he's being interviewed by Mike Wallace for 60 minutes in 1983, Wallace reads excerpts from McGinnis's book to McDonald and they get like his reaction, like on camera, right? Like Jesus. absolutely wild. Oh, man, that's great. I am totally reading this. <laughs> Same. So this led to like this whole series of lawsuits, relitigations, other media, there's documentaries, there's all podcasts, right? Uh, but possibly the most notable thing to, to mention here is a book called The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. And she basically examines the morality of journalism through this lens of McGinnis's interactions with McDonald. And I'm going to quote her opening paragraph here. This is a quote. Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness, gaining their trust, and betraying them without remorse. Like the credulous widow who wakes up one day to find the charming young man and all of her savings gone, so the consenting subject of a piece of nonfiction learns, when the article or book appears, his hard lesson. Journalists justify their treachery in various ways according to their temperaments. The more pompous talk about freedom of speech and the public's right to know. The least talented talk about art. The seemliest murmur about earning a living. So Malcolm goes on to discuss both that McGinnis misled McDonald and also that McGinnis figured out that McDonald was actually kind of boring and that a big part of his depiction stemmed from wanting to make his book more interesting and McDonald not being a very great character to write about. And this is like a whole mess and hard to sort out because Malcolm's book is also controversial. And it led to even more media being generated about it all, including a book by Errol Morris, who's a documentarian. He did like The Thin Blue Line. Uh, he did The Fog of War, which is excellent. This is like bookception. Yeah. Errol Morris's book is called Weird Wilderness of Error. And it's his opinion about the case. And he has opinions about like everyone. All right. So there's no way the folks in the writer's room for Ted Lasso weren't aware of this context of Joe McGinnis, right? Because in, I think, September of 2020, which was peak pandemic, like people willing to watch just fucking anything, right? We're like Tiger King territory there, right? I never watched it. Neither did I. A five-part FX series based on Errol Morris's book, also called Wilderness of Error, came out, like, right? So that was that was a big sort of docudrama that came out then. The fact that McGinnis had this in his track record, and that he even had access to a team like he did to write Miracle, is kind of amazing, particularly given the organized crime connections of the team. Mm -hmm. And all I can really think about is how it really serves as a great reminder of what things were possible before the internet was what it is today, right? Because this is 96, 97, like there was internet, but it wasn't the wasn't like this all encompassing thing like i was on study abroad in 96 and we had the internet but we had limited access to anything outside of new zealand right i had to go to an internet cafe to get online when i went in 2001 so right <laughs> nobody could use I hear the you. phone you know when it was dial up so it was like your mom <laughs> right. was like you can't i'm trying to use the phone and you're like i'm trying to google stuff yeah you right. weren't Googling in the 90s. There was no, no Google. No, I wasn't. No, <laughs> right. I can't remember. I, was, I can't remember what I was doing. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> right, but, but I guess my point here is, like, there is no way that today an author with a track record like McGinnis would have the access and opportunity to go in and write a team, like, about a team like mm -hmm. the one in, in Castel de Sangro. It wouldn't happen. They would be like, he did what? Oh, fuck no. Right, not mm -hmm. going to happen. So that, that makes it a really interesting context because, you know, today they would have known better. 
So I think mm-hmm. this is really interesting in the context of Ted Lasso because there's lots of books about sports teams and seasons, especially underdogs, right? There's a lot of them to choose from. And this one, of course, is particularly germane because it is soccer and it's an underdog team fighting for salvation after an unlikely promotion. It's also, I mean, McGinnis is a hell of a writer. This is a fun read. It yes. really, really is. Until the end. <laughs> then um, it gets dark. Yes. The guy likes a twist, doesn't he? He really, right. you know. But it, it does add an interesting context because it's introduced right at the same time we get Trent coming in to spend the season with a team. Yeah. And, you know, we know some stuff about Trent. We know at least past Trent has no issue writing negative things about people, right? We start off like all the way early in his career with the criticism of Roy that he's been carrying, like both literally and figuratively forever, mm-hmm. right? Trent was still being edgy at the start of season one when we meet him, when he asked, you know, not just a straight up journalism question, but is this a fucking joke, right? And he he wrote the story about Ted's panic attacks. Mm-hmm. We also have caused, and it's been discussed at length on the internet, to question Trent's journalistic ethics, right? He outed a source. He outed Nate as a source, and we know he outed him to Ted at the very least, whether Beard knows it was Nate because he heard from Trent or because Beard just knows things but but there was that outing we also know that people like rebecca and higgins think giving trent access is a terrible idea we see that when she leaves trent's participation up to ted and it actually made me think of a a quote from season two from rebecca and she's not talking about journalists she's talking about relationships but the quote in goodbye earl when she conveys that sassy had told her that intimacy is all about leaving yourself vulnerable to attack right because letting trent into this season especially with his track record, is leaving yourself very vulnerable to attack. In the best of scenarios, allowing someone like him in requires a huge amount of either foolishness or faith in not only your own integrity, like you know you're not going to do something so horrible it's going to reflect poorly on you, but but you also have to count on Trent's integrity. And counting on the integrity of a writer is a huge risk, right? So... Is Trent all he seems to be? I mean, those looks he gives Ted at this point, like, is he really that lovingly oh, He's in love with Ted, right? Okay, like, we're saying that, but, like, go back to McGinnis, right? And yeah. look at the letters he was sending to McDonald. And so that's why I think this book is really oh. interesting in, in this context in the show. So, um... Good point. I would say that because of Trent's particular reaction to this is going to work... Um, yeah, we don't even need to know for and all of that. That as of right now, unless there's some like weird twist, kind of like there was in Castel di Sangro, that yes, his integrity and like that that is going to pay off positively, even if they don't win the the premiership. But there could be a twist, right? And so, so that's what I'm saying. I I agree with you. I think the show we're watching, Trent is is going to come through for them. However. While we're on the subject, does anybody have any sort of ideas what number four is going to be? I know this is there isn't going to be a number four, just like there's not going to be a season four. Do you think that's the the angle they're taking? That's that's my read on that. Wow, right? Is like so the, number four doesn't even matter. Is we don't what happens in this hypothetical season four doesn't even matter. That is really fucking good. A great line in um, our friends over at Peanut Butter and Biscuits when they interviewed James Lance this last week. And and their take was it was a message to sort of in general to fans. Season four doesn't matter, right? Focus on now. <laughs> and that's what Jason says in all the interviews. He's like, look, we're, you know, it'd be like asking a sports team to worry about next season when they haven't won this season yet. So, yeah, that, that lines up. Wow. 
Love it. So, so I'm going to quote quickly from, from Miracle, the book, and all along he sort of gets interviewed by the Italian press and then they completely fabricate the interviews. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, and so the an English translation of one of his fabricated interviews, I believe it's after one of the players is involved for being involved in a drug smuggling ring, right? right? And his quote in the interview, whether it was him or not, is, I tell the reality, so I will also do it this time. And so, you know, Trent doesn't really have a lot of scandalous reality to tell. Um, it depends however, on what you count as scandal because they're tabloids. So so Colin doesn't want to be a spokesperson for being gay. Is Trent's book going to respect that? Fucking better. Given the show that this is, like again, probably. And especially because like as of this recording, we only have two episodes to go. That is that would be a lot ah! to introduce a bombshell, <laughs> right? But we just read this book that takes an absolutely fucking wild turn in the last 40 pages or so. Yeah. <laughs> to, to give a little story, Bex was the last one to finish. And like I was only like a day ahead of her. And she messaged and said, I've got 40 pages left to go. Left to go. And I was like, oh, you are in for it then. Because <laughs> that book changed on a knife edge on the last 40 pages. It was so weird. So so anyway, yeah. I, I mean, I just think it's interesting to consider like the implications, given the, that they use the McGinnis book, that are potentially there for having Trent Krim there, right? If I you know ever do a gritty noir sort of retelling of Ted Lasso, Trent's going dark, right? Oh, well. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's happening Marita's here. fanfic. Trent's true crime podcast. Yeah, other people write Ted Becca. I write like Trent taking the dark side. <laughs> I mean, that's all really interesting because it's true. Like I just think about because I consume a lot of uh, true crime, and there is yeah. always a lot about like is there an ulterior motive? Like one of the ones, um, the staircase. Was, oh yes, uh, right. He they were yeah. hired to tell his story, and like he he wanted to appear innocent and i don't think he does no right and even making a, Mur making a murderer is that the famous one on netflix yeah. Yeah. With the yes, guys and, yeah same thing and i don't know if this is true i've never looked into it and i've meant to and i never have that one of the filmmakers was actually in a relationship with somebody in the family or something or that there's some connection there and that whether or not that was like a real like was i remember it there being memory. something off about it yeah, that, yeah that, that's true of the staircase and and thank you by the way for bringing up something that colin firth was in um <laughs> but, <laughs> i am here for you i am here for you <laughs> Wait, I've never seen that. Did he play well, the Wonder Woman? The well, there's two staircases. There's a staircase documentary that was done, and then there's staircase Colin Firth. I actually haven't watched that yet. I have. Who could take the... Colin Firth as a villain? Come on. Oh, you could. Oh, oh is he good? Could. I'm gonna watch. Oh, he's it. okay. it's very so good. good. Staircase is fascinating. Staircase is fascinating. Maria, you're biased. I'll take Andrea's word. Yeah. But yes, anyway, my point just being, it's, I mean, it's hard to tell something like I'm actually, I'm going to rabbit hole. I'm actually currently listening to a book about 9-11 that I find fascinating. And I've seen people writing about it being like, like kind of complaining about the book. And it's a true crime book. He is mm. laying out everything that happened on 9-11 in chronological order and factually, right? Like mm -hmm. this happened here, then this, then this, and he's got, and like, it is in depth. I am 10, in 10 chapters, we've only covered the planes. And now, wow. now we've started talking about New York and the Pentagon. And it's, I'm not, I'm not even at the halfway point of the book yet. It's a huge yeah. book and it's fascinating. But the thing is, it's like, but it is true. Like, how can you not write about 9-11 and have emotion in it? Like, mm -hmm. How can I even listening to this 
not feel any emotion about it and feel anger and feel all the things that I felt on 9-11. But like, you do need to understand the facts, right? That's why there are forensic, you know, forensic pathology and there's sciences around studying things and understanding crime and understanding getting into people's heads, right? And can you remove a bias, right? Can I you mean, that's a the bias. Well, question. Well, on, on top of that, I mean, you know, it's important to lay out the facts, but in any given situation, there are so many facts, so yes. many things actually true that any writer is going to have to selectively choose what they include. I mean, yes. some writers are completely and obviously intellectually dishonest about it, but mm -hmm. others of them will include or exclude things just because of what narrative they are working on. That's it, because they're still um, creating a story and a story needs a narrative. If you yes. just give all the facts, it's a boring read, right? So right. That, how do yes. you do that? Well, and, and beyond a boring read, it's an unintelligible mess because there's so many different perspectives in it. And right, deciding what's important. Yes. But... But yeah, anyway, so so I just think that this book was a given McGinnis's history, incorporating this to talk about the Richmond season and bring in Trent. I thought it was a really interesting choice. Yeah, I'm yeah, fascinated to see. And we're going to see dark Trent. I like the fact that somebody, he wrote a book about this murderer and then somebody wrote a book about him writing a book about a murderer and then somebody else wrote a book about that. And then now you're doing a podcast section on it. Time for a pause, Greyhounds. And this episode, we asked, now that we know Trent is writing a book about Richmond, what do you think that book's going to be called? Brian Tabatabai suggests Barbecue Sauce, the untold inside story of AFC Richmond's rise to glory. Harhar3r76 on Twitter says, well, I really like the lass away, but the Wizard of Haz has a nice ring to it. Oops, in it on Twitter says, I've said it before and I'll say it again, how I fell in love with Ted Lasso. Now, back to the podcast. Excellent, Marita, thank you very much. You've given me another couple of books to check out. Andrea, are you going to keep the murder vibes going or are we going in a different no direction? No murder. No murder, <laughs> okay. Oh, well. So um, I also very much enjoyed reading this book. I loved it, but I did struggle with my section today. And I've actually written more than I expected to write. But like, I think, I think even writing this, I just kind of realized this book had a lot of personal emotion for me. And I don't think I could get past it to really think about Ted Lasso completely reading it. I'll just kind of say that. And then just like, say like, I, I mean, yeah, I was immediately drawn in and cared about everyone involved. Like I was laughing. I thought it was, there were just hysterical parts. They were just truth. And I was just completely invested. I immediately liked everybody I was reading about. And I just like, wanted to know more. I was immediately drawn in by the narration and just every, just the way he told the story, everything. But yeah, like I, I never came up with a solid, like, and this talks about Ted Lasso because, so like, I loved hearing, like, I loved hearing that. Cause like, I couldn't even get there. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even get past what I was thinking about to even get there. So I've had that with a couple of books. I know exactly yeah. what you mean. Sometimes like, it's just, you really enjoy the book, but there's just nothing, right? you know, connect. And, right. yeah, and I was just so tickled by the Italian stuff and and like it, it just brought back a lot of memories for me and like which kind of yeah give our listeners some background to that because we talked yeah, about this. I have I have yeah. that in my yeah it's in my oh it's good let right. me go through my <laughs> let her do <laughs> her <laughs> thing yeah wait a minute <laughs> shut Michaela <laughs> so like and of course there are similarities right an American falls in love with the most beautiful game crosses the ocean leaves his family to be involved but I don't really think that's Ted I don't think Ted fell in love with soccer to move 
to across the, you know, I think Rebecca picked him out of obscurity and he took the opportunity for other reasons. So I don't, you know, I don't think he was opposed to football, soccer, but I think he, you know, like he's a guy who likes sports and people who like sports are going to like any sport, you know, like there there's going to be some that resonate more to you than others, but if it's a fun sport, it's a fun sport. And so like, in some ways it was even a little bit more for me about beard. Cause like, I feel like beard, you know, he's like gone all in, you know, like he's fully invested. So I didn't really see a Ted connection in that sense. And I, I was kind of left with two, two kind of resonating thoughts, a fish out of water, an American outside of America, and then football as a fan sport in America. So kind of starting with the first one, the fish out of water and American outside of America, like watching both Ted and Joe in different ways, struggling with understanding they were in a different place. Like I sometimes feel Ted honestly is almost incapable of trying to see he is somewhere different. I hate to criticize Ted. I love my Ted, but like, like he almost sometimes is just like, now I'm an American and this is American. This is what Americans do. Like he kind of has a little bit of that ugliness to him. And, you know, and, and I don't think Ted has fallen in love with football. I think I think he has started to appreciate it more, but I think he even, even just, you know, in the opening scene in season one, you know, like he's just relying on beer to tell him all the things like he's never, at no point he's been like, oh, I'm going to go teach the sport. I'm going to go coach the sport. Let me go learn about it. Even when he has his bad metaphor for being gay, he draws back to American football, right? Yes. (laughs) And I was going to say, even in this last episode, when he's finally like, or no, not not the last episode, in, in the first episode of the season, because I rewatched that scene this morning where Roy says, you know, 4-4-2, and he's like, oh, four defensemen, four midfielders, two up front. And like, this is season three, and he, they like think they have to explain that to him. Yeah. yeah. He's a people coach, not a sport coach. Right. right. Like, he's yeah. not I coaching think... the sport, he's coaching the people. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of see that as a sign. He knows he's not staying. He's not getting comfortable. He's not going to stay there. He knows he's yeah. leaving. Um, and un- I think Joe understood that he was also, you know, Joe understood more that he left his country and he was somewhere else. But even he struggled. He was just like, it was culture shock. It was clear mm-hmm. culture shock in the beginning. He's just like, wait, what the fuck? Like, what? What do you mean I'm locked into this hostel for the whole day? <laughs> oh, that was totally, I was like, that's the kind of shit that happened to me, honestly. <laughs> Except I would have just meekly stayed there for 24 hours and waited till the guy came back and been like, I'm so sorry. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, you're not American. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Americans are, no, too yeah. demanding. I would have yeah. starved to death waiting on the guy coming back. <laughs> and and then just kind of to mention Beard again, like, I mean, Beard is almost chameleon-like with his ability. Like, I just feel like, like he's, he feels like he belongs in Richmond and you could then move him to Kansas and he would feel like that's where he belonged and talking about American sports. Like he's just a, I just feel like he's a chameleon guy. Like I don't yeah. see him as an American in England. I, he's just beard in England. He's just beard. I would agree with that. You know? Yeah. He's got all his axes there now. And even in Amsterdam when beards and him are like, where are we going to go? Yeah. And Ted's like, let's go to this American diner and beards. You can see beard like going for fuck's sake. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's, it's very beard and Ted. Yeah. So yeah. So I like, I related deeply with this book. Like I, you know, like, so kind of a little bit of my introduction, like I feel torn between three worlds. I'm arguably a third of three different things. And my mom's side is from South America, Brazil, and Argentina. My dad's side is entirely from Italy. And I was born and raised in America. I It's that's a, a cult- triangle. It's a, cult- it's a culture divide that's really real. And I, I'm from three worlds, but I don't belong to any of them. I've never mm. felt at home 
in either three of them, but each of them is a piece of me that I love. Do you know what I mean? And I feel, you know, I feel like Ted can relate with that. I think he feels at home in the United States more than England, but I think that he also maybe wasn't feeling like his family was his family for a while there. And I think he's, you know, coming to terms with that in England and that's good. But like, I think he also feels like a fish out of water and everywhere he's at. And that's something that I relate to with Ted. Mm -hmm. Joe definitely felt more like he was settled in who he was, but he was like, I want this experience. Mm -hmm. No, I I think it's particularly interesting because when you get to the end of, of the book, you start hearing a lot from McGinnis about kind of this, it almost feels like a sense of impending doom because he's about to leave behind what he's doing. And I wonder how much, I mean, I think there's a lot of consensus that Ted being the father that Ted is has to go back to America. He has to go back to Henry. And I wonder how much of that we're going to see from Ted with this conflict between the two worlds in this last two episodes of the season. I'm curious about that. Mm -hmm. I think that really. Me too. I completely agree. That's I find that fascinating. Like, when is he going to finally give in to one or the other of his lives, of his worlds? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's something that resonates a lot with me. And so, you know, then kind of going back to the book, again, the book, like some of his observations about Italians were just like, just, I just was dying of laughter. <laughs> and just like, it just like the impression of them and how they move and think and act and the things that like, they're all things that I've experienced going there. And like, they are just a different people. You know, I, I just, I loved that part of it. And I like almost, again, like couldn't get past that to think of anything else, honestly. I, would, I think my favorite was don't eat garlic, but a couple of cigarettes won't hurt. <laughs> that was, that was, that's, that's a very, like, there's something between the Scottish and the Italians that are like, yeah, that made sense. Don't eat the garlic. That's bad for you. But here's a cigarette. Right. Yes. They have these rules that are just like, are you listening to yourself right now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> right and I feel that and like it was just like like again yeah I just feel like I couldn't get past it and so like uh you know like even the whole thing about the obsession with the miracle like my like my family has a miracle story in in Sicily picture it Sicily 1922 I was going to say was it in 1922 (laughs) for anybody who doesn't know that's a golden girls reference and we do relate very much to the golden girls so sorry carry on and just like this you know yeah like they they just have this belief that god's saving them and they all believe it and it's just there and it's like yeah like when are you going to believe in the people and the things that they're doing or, or science and these things it was like no god god right like god saved me you know and it's like I'm like okay it's italy like you, you know like oh my god i don't know and i i appreciate it too his whole his whole thing about hitting about how football is different everywhere like i think you know in south america they learned their football from england england came brought it to them and they learned it but south american football is different from european football which is different from, like mm-hmm. you know obviously there's a international rules that apply to everyone and we have the world cup that they all come together but i think each league has their own ecosystems and things and that's also very fascinating and just like i love i absolutely loved the description of like all the levels down that the that Italian was so league. informative oh my god i yeah. adore that and like that was the thing that came up in Wrexham too when in the one of the first mm-hmm. episodes i talked about how far down Wrexham had gone mm-hmm. you know and like that there were things below that you know, just like oh my yeah, god yeah the relegation like, and promotion it's like a different thing we have here compared to american sports i yes. wish we had it the more i yeah. learn about it the cooler i think it is yeah. it's like well you're going to learn a bit more about it today as well so yeah stay tuned because we, we go into a bit of that later so. so the fish out of water concept is also a, you know kind of lasso started as right like we needed the commercials for the premier league on espn and this ted character kind of came out 
Um, and he really pushed this, you know, he really pushed the, like, I don't know what this is, you know, like dumb American thing. And mm-hmm. like, and I'm glad How that many countries toned- are in this country. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad that that was toned down for the show, but the parts of it, there are, fun- I mean, it, it is a funny bit, but I would like to see him embrace where he is a little bit more at some point. Yeah. Um, and, oh, I'd say I do sometimes find his continued anger, ignorance, or, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's ignorant, like about the sport and what it is. Although at the same time, I've, I'm not religious about the sport, but I've been watching soccer for 50 years and I still don't fucking know what offsides is. I don't know. I have no fame. I didn't know passive offside was a thing until Ted Lasso. What the fuck is passive offside? Don't anybody try and explain it to me. I don't care. I don't know. Who knows? (laughs) All right. So my second section is the beautiful game, football and football in America. And so as Americans, I think we do understand weird, obsessive, sometimes fun, sometimes deeply unhealthy culture around sports. (laughs) But since everyone else is obsessed with a sport that Americans, A, don't excel at, B, don't particularly like, we look down on the other countries. American men don't excel. Yeah, good point. (laughs) And we're typical fucking Americans. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. So I believe people who genuinely love sports, once they see it, once they get it, they also get the football bug. It's, It's easy. It's such an exciting, fast sport. Like, I think the thing that it misses... For Americans is the pastime of it. The like, I'm going to sit around and get commercials and get beer. And like, it's an event for Americans. Sports are an, yeah. yeah. Sports is an event. Um, It's not entirely about what's happening. Like, I don't know. I have so many friends who are just like, you need to come to a baseball game. And I apologize. Please don't stop listening to us. Cause I'm going to say this. I don't like baseball. I never, I'm going to back you up. I'm going to back you up on that. I've one. never liked that Looks- sport. And like, it's and- all right. We still love you. <laughs> Also, yeah. though, I don't like cricket either. So, like, just to make sure it's not just an anti-American thing. I hate cricket no, as well. well. But then I have friends who are just like, you need to come to game. And I'm like, I don't like it. They're like, I don't watch. I don't like it either. I don't watch the game. I'm like, so you just want to sit there for five hours and eat hot dogs and drink? And like, what? In the sun? To that, bar. That, that, so, Mikaela, would you care to explain how long cricket games can be? That is absolutely a drinking spectator Like fucking sport. days, isn't it? Yeah, they have multi-day test matches. Like, how could you do something so boring for so fucking Fucking long. What is wrong with Willingly. <laughs> Willingly, yeah. Now, yeah. now. I'm I know. I'm sorry for any I'm just kidding. Out there, but like, yeah, we'll keep we'll keep our judgment. <laughs> yeah, we'll be so curious I, and not judgmental. Yeah. Why are you stop no, that? <laughs> so I grew up in a family that that cared very deeply about their football, um, and I remember being up at ungodly hours to catch a game. Uh, you know, the World Cup matches they used to show on the Spanish station. And so you'd have to wake up whenever it was on. It wasn't a, we're going to watch it at prime time. Or, you know, it was where you're going to watch it at two in the morning because it's playing over here somewhere else, you know, but also religiously huddling around Sunday on American football, you know, like as a family. So, you know, same obsessions, but like, I don't, yeah, it just, it appears differently in each sport in each country. Different culture. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and I do remember when the world cup was held in the United States in 94, that he talked about that that was kind of the thing that inspired him. Um, the opening ceremony was in Chicago, but like none of my teams played in Chicago, unfortunately. And that was the year Maradona was Maradona was um, expelled for drug use. Cause he's a oh, fucking he? nutball. Yeah. In the he's a bit of a nutball, right? I had to explain oh, to no. my young yeah. son, why cocaine <laughs> was bad. <laughs> And I, but I also remember it being a time, like, finally, some of my American friends were joining in. Like, it was, that was a thing I did with my family. I had no one, there was not a single person that I knew outside of my family that watched. 
And that was the time. And like, that was all, you know, Italy played for the final and they were second place. They didn't win. Brazil won. I, I, again, really responded to his just kind of journey and having watched that. And that's like what brought him to do this. Like that was what mm-hmm. kind of inspired him to like go to Italy and see all this. And like, that was, you know, like it definitely became easier and easier to watch in the United States after that. And I had written, like, I didn't remember exactly when we were able to start seeing games in English and outside of the Spanish station. I just have to say, even if you don't understand watching the Spanish, oh my God, the Spanish announcement, they are so passionate. You don't they even, really are. You may not even understand what they're saying, but you can feel it. And yeah, and then, oh, 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 that's the thing as well. Like, you have so many commercials over there. That can you even show an entire game of soccer with? They've only like, really started doing Premier League games, and I yeah, I think they struggle. and they're on cable, aren't yeah. they? So they can like do it in such a way where they can just do commercials between games. Yeah, USA I think shows a lot of them. Uh, Paramount oh, okay. Plus, Peacock have have some of them. Yeah, That's yeah, because But with streaming, it's not as the commercial thing isn't as. Like no, as yeah, it used fair. to be with standard network television, but on Although, USA or something that might interfere. But for the the UEFA, the Champions Leagues, that those have been on CBS like proper. Like my mom's been watching football because the new news isn't on. So I mean, I can watch. Well, yeah. I can watch Boca Juniors here now. Not all the time, but when they're in a larger tournament. I mean, I, I you could only. Ever, that's my. I'm sorry. That's my home team in Argentina, Boca Juniors. They are a they're a neighborhood small team. They have never, I have never seen them play other than going to Argentina and seeing them, but they, I've been able to, I've watched like two or three games in the last two years. I wonder what Ted Lasso's done for the the sort of football in America. Obviously here, people are obsessed with that. No no TV show was going to change anybody's mind, but in America, you wonder if if it's had an impact. The first I knew about it too was the World Cup, because obviously they played some games in Foxborough, which Mm -hmm. is where I grew up. So it was a big thing, even though I didn't know anything about it or care anything about it. I knew what was going on. Um, I think things like like Ted Lasso, like Wrexham, like, you know, that, that they can help expand that. But also, you know, growing populations of people from countries where football is yeah. much bigger deal has also played a big part in mm-hmm. in the growing popularity here yeah yeah um so i did actually look it up and espn did start showing games in 86 but apparently it was like sporadic and horrible mm-hmm. espn 7 no yeah. just kidding. <laughs> um and it was the 94 world cup that opened that door and then obviously the premier league was the then like the next big step um, and even honestly, to this day, like there's an English and a Scottish pub, not bar here in in Chicago that I've oh, gone nice. to before. And they are like, you cannot even English and Scottish and the one. No, no, no. They're separate. They're separate. I was going to say separate pubs. Jinx. They're mm-hmm. a completely yeah. different size. Like they're not near each other. Don't worry. <laughs> and they, yeah, like you can't go to them on Saturdays anymore because they're just full of people. And so, that, I mean, that's great for the game, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I bet if we asked a Jason and Brendan like what the world cup did for them. I, I really wonder, like, I would love to ask yeah. them that, right? Like when did I, we all know that, right? Like we've all heard about beard being in Amsterdam and that him getting obsessed with it there. But I do kind of wonder like, what did the world cup do for them open up for mm-hmm. them? And then like, and I think, I think one of the key things that really came up for me in this book and also recently, like, I think it came up, Rebecca was speaking to it in this last episode is that historical family 
thing about sports. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Like we all, when, when we think about things we used to watch as a kid with our parents or our brothers and right. Like there's always some show you're like, Oh, I used to watch reruns of that show with my dad. And mm-hmm. it's this re- memory thing. And we have that with sports here, but then they have it tenfold where it's like, I watched with my father and my grandfather and they watched it with their father and their right. Like, yeah, much. Uh, there's people who have disowned children over yes. football affiliation. Well, <laughs> doesn't weird to didn't me. But... Collins grand say something to him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after his team got relegated. Yeah. Right? Missed a penalty or something. And, and that was but... a pig and Wrexham and the Wrexham show that they talked yep. about that, the deep seated like that, like that town owned that team. No one else owns that team. Right. And Rebecca yeah. was saying that like, the, we don't own this. This is the fans own these teams and this mm-hmm. this game. And in America, with American football, like teams move states all the time. And so they've mm-hmm. lost that you lost all that connection. Yeah. Well, the I mean, only like, thing I would say that it looks similar is the Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles seem to have as passionate a fan base as I've oh, seen in well there there well, certainly some. are. I mean, I mean it must just be the luck of who you follow on Twitter because right. everyone has its own like I mean, equally passionate. The the, yeah. um, the Raiders, they were the Los Angeles Raiders when I was little. Now they're Las Vegas Raiders. Well, so. and, you know, they were Oakland um, um, too, Oakland. right? But, yep. but yeah, and then like something that I just cannot imagine happening in the UK, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kyla, but like moving teams because it's profitable. You end up with these incongruous names where the teams were named based on where they started. And so you have like the Utah Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> the, the actual fuck right <laughs> yeah i can't i can't imagine that being a thing here because the, the teams are so ingrained in the area mm-hmm. that it just it's, it wouldn't be a thing I, I, yeah. i'm not saying it hasn't i don't know but it just doesn't feel like it would be a thing. i i remember when they were before they built gillette in foxborough they actually talked about moving it <laughs> to a different part of Massachusetts and it was like excuse oh, me oh well they were talking what? about moving it to Connecticut that was ooh <laughs> that too yes you're right you're right and like with Connecticut the problem for all of our out of the US listeners or maybe even for out of the northeast of the US is that Connecticut is one of those states where so we have big rivalries in sports between Boston and New York but yeah. across the board and Connecticut is one of those sport, one of those states where if you live in Eastern Connecticut, you're like a Boston fan. If you live in Western Connecticut, you're a New York fan. <laughs> and that right. you know, there's not like a strict line, but Connecticut is that state that's kind of like got both. And you're just like, mm, really, Connecticut, really. <laughs> well, London has tons of football teams and oh, yeah, yeah, same sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. And that was everything I wrote. But then, um, Bex, in our little chat, you had mentioned about kind of May and the boys. And I was kind of thinking about that a little bit. I didn't add anything, but I just kind of wrote a question I thought maybe we could talk about a little bit. But like, yeah. remember when May got angry at Bass's friend who was coming in, right? Well, she's had a couple yeah. of things. She was That's getting true. mad at yeah. Bass's friend was wearing a different, right? And she almost was mean to yeah oh, anyway yeah. <laughs> um, it's like you think i wanted to fucking go like that right? was funny. she wouldn't bring them beers right like mm-hmm. and right and we all kind of i mean and not we all but there was some criticism of her like what's up with may why is she be but like send them maui we will have we will no, but i'm just no saying criticism. but we all do that we all like yeah. you know like there there are bars that like if you you know like i mean in chicago there's a whole thing about our rivalry is with um packers so on Sunday games, when it's the Bears versus the Packers and everyone's in the bar and the Bears, and a person walks in with a Packers jersey, everyone's like, 
you know. Yeah. The fuck? There'd be fights. <laughs> if there was a Rangers just... pub and a Sunday and a Celtic trip walked in, there would be literal there would be literal fight and it would be a problem. It's not just the pubs though. Like when so when I was growing up, there's no professional ice hockey team in Oregon. There's not very many ice rinks in Oregon, which is part of the reason it's hilarious. I ended up playing ice hockey, um, <laughs> not in Oregon. The only I, I didn't have a team to cheer for in hockey growing up, but I had this great book, um, like a children's book about Maurice Richard, who was an amazing player, played for the Montreal Canadiens. So uh, then when I was in college and I started, I was a, a goalie in soccer and I started loving hockey. And that's when Patrick Waugh, who played for the Canadiens, was big. So I had a, I was a Habs fan. I had a Canadiens jersey and then I moved to Boston. And like, I remember maybe my second day in town, I went to the grocery store and like wearing a Habs jersey and the guy behind the counter at Star Market behind the butcher's counter like wasn't even paying attention and then all of the you're wearing the wrong jersey like <laughs> I just started getting flack from random strangers not in a bar not in the context of a game but yeah but the look on Bex's face she's like I don't know oh, so yeah, like I'm, you don't you don't Canadians are just you, no. you have to closet that in Boston and I'm I'm a fair Bruins fan now too um <laughs> but uh it's it's not limited to during the actual time of the games no not at all. no it's and- like a it's a social signifier it's like an acceptable gang to belong to yeah, yeah. essentially that's what it is yeah mm-hmm. and i will say the boston red the boston red sox new york yankees rivalry has diminished in its extreme uh like violence and that sort of thing since the red sox uh did win the world series and now there's like okay there's a little bit more of back and forth it's not so although you can still go to fenway and they'll be playing a completely unrelated (laughs) team and the crowd will still chant yankees suck i mean it still happens let's not lie that doesn't go away and i think boston is like as a boston fan i will say they're probably the worst culprits of it but (laughs) anyway sorry detoured quite a bit And yeah, that's just the end of mine. And I just think it's interesting. Like, I think even kind of maybe going back for a second about what I was saying about Ted, Ted kind of like almost maybe being a little bit flippant at times. And I feel like Beard has brought him back to be like, no, this, this shit really matters to people here. Mm -hmm. You can't treat this like you did in, in the United States, you know, Mm -hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like this book, oh my God, this book showed like these people are fucking obsessed. (laughs) they're fucking nuts don't mess with them i like that you said that and i'm gonna come back to that idea when it's my turn time for another pause greyhounds and back to trent's book p dice travels on twitter suggests belief and tap out 1001 suggests believe cj dunlap on twitter suggests believe or redemption song the last linda suggests hounds of love so that kate bush stays on the top of today's charts Fred Chever suggests tales of a sport. J. Gray Million says the art of believing. Paging Chenford recommends independent. Now back to the podcast. Thank you, Andrea. That was great. I think it's me next. So Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I'm going to be talking about how Ted Lasso and the miracle of Castel de Sangro highlights the battle between fans and money in the world of football. So the owner of Castel de Sangro, Signor Pietro Reza, is a shady character, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah, that's an understatement. Well done. Yeah, it reminds me of Rupert Murdoch. In fact, when I was reading it, that's all I could see was that wrinkly old reason, Rupert Murdoch. So he's greedy, he's corrupt, and he cares little for his own team. He controls everything around him, including changing the earth and his estate to suit his wants and needs, like literally moving mountains. 
It's like real life Minecraft, yeah. Yeah, he lived. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, this dude thinks he's a, he's in Minecraft, but Minecraft gets, IRL. <laughs> yeah, but except he just gets everybody else to do his, his work for him. Yeah, because he was living in that in Switzerland near that lake, and he was like, oh, I can't stand it here because sometimes this lake is like a shitty color, and I can't do anything about it because it's not my lake. And it's like, but if it was your lake, what were you going to do? Dump a bunch of dye in it? Like what? Anyway. Well, Andrea's from Chicago. She can speak um, to that. Yeah, yeah, they do die the river. They are, a river they? that's yeah. already fucking green. <laughs> it is, but not this. I the, the only time I was in Chicago was I, I got to see that river dying, and the 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 it's color they dye it is not. It's not a color rivers are. No. <laughs> and I'm sorry. And Listen. I don't. Uh, I'm sorry, Tan. I, I no, no, you go for it. Kyla. You go for it. But like, did you? Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen. Like, because I follow a lot of Chicago Twitter, and you may not have seen it. But like, they found that there was like one day that there was this giant fucking turtle hanging out around the river, and everyone was freaking out because nothing alive. There, like, there's nothing alive in that disgusting river. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, it was this giant fat fucking turtle. Please tell me they named it Donatello. Please, I, I, like that must. It, it probably started off as a really small turtle, and the the green gave it all its powers. Maybe, right? maybe. <laughs> yeah, he's a mutant for sure. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> but this guy even has his own staff, like looking for misplaced rocks while he sits smoking a fat cigar, like, and then eventually just gets bored and gives up. Like he's a complete twat. He siphons money from the football club for his own projects, and he refuses to travel to away matches. He employs his unhinged nepo baby son-in-law, Gravina. Am I saying that right, Gravina? Yeah, let's go. Sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah, and he manages Castel de Sangro, even though he's in it for his own vanity and he doesn't seem to have any interest in the progression of the team. Reza also arranges for Gravina and Preti, a South American player on the team, to be let out of a cocaine smuggling charge, which he seemingly (laughs) knew about. Like, what the fuck? Just this book was mental. It took so many turns. It took so many turns. I think at one point, um, and I'll get to that, but like two of the guys unfortunately lost their lives in a motor, a motor vehicle. And I was like, what the? F- what am I reading? I thought this was about football. But obviously these things happen. And like Marita's explained, you know, a writer's going to write about what happens. And two men died. So he did. But yeah, it was like this book took so many turns. And one of them was a cocaine smuggling ring that involved the manager of the team. Yeah. Can't see Ted doing that. Can you? No. Like I can see him inadvertently helping. Maybe beard. Um, <laughs> accidentally helping. I could see Ted accidentally helping some drug smuggling, not realizing that, that they're drugs or something. Yeah. But yeah, Beard, Beard has drug smuggled because he took his own shrooms into Amsterdam. Yeah. There you go. When Joe, who I would consider to be a passionate fan of Castel de Sangro, he stood up to Reza, urging him to put more money into the team. Reza didn't even try to hide his disinterest. In doing so, like he didn't even try to cover up for the fact that he just didn't want to put money. In fact, far from it, the opposite way, he wanted to take money out of the team. In the end, Reza betrayed his own team and took a bribe from Barry Football Club to throw the last match of the season. So I think we can agree that Senior Reza is not a fan of his own team. I think. Would you agree? Yeah, not definitely not the way that the fans who are like the citizens of. Castel right. de Sangro are, you know, he's he's a fan of money and this is his tool to get more money. Yeah, and tax breaks and whatever else. Yeah, talking about the fans, I mean, these were fans that were like filling up, free, I mean, they were free buses, but I mean, still, they filled up those buses so much that they, they ran out of buses. 
But the fans locally gave a shit about the game. They were passionate. You've got Marcella, who opens up our restaurant as a home away from home for the players and some of the players' family. Like, it just felt, that felt like a real community. Whereas what Reza was doing, you know, just felt like a, a business. The players themselves up till the Barry match as well were passionate and determined and playing in the memory of people in Daniel who died in the car crash mid-season and really seemed to be wanting the team to succeed. Obviously up until the last match, but that's a, a different part of the story. But yeah, so in comparison to the sort of local fans and even the players to a certain extent, Reza just has very little interest in what the team is doing. I mean, not even travelling to away matches is just like, yeah, just say you don't give a fuck, you know, it'd be quicker. But unlike Reza, who made his money in construction, and I'm also doing air quotes, which don't suit a podcast, but yeah, construction, which feels like an analogy for corruption. <laughs> Rupert started out as a working class lad who skipped the fence to see his beloved Richmond AFC. Even taking a slap from a security guard and then rewarding that same security guard once he bought the team. So we don't know how Rupert made his money, correct? If I, I, I've not missed something. Like, we don't really know how he's made his money, right? Yeah, I, I don't remember. Yeah, there's nothing that we know. I know he's friends with an oil tycoon, so that might give us some clue. But either way, we do. We can definitely agree that his actions in later life mean he's let that money go straight to his head. So yeah. he's no longer. It's no longer that working class lad anymore. I would say that we see Rupert go from genuine fan of Richmond to greedy money grabber as soon as he loses the team to Rebecca. Instead of caring about his team, he becomes bitter, and it becomes about revenge. He fully gives up on his team when he purchases West Ham and poaches Nate from Richmond. If he genuinely was a fan of Richmond, he wouldn't have taken the very person that was bringing them success. So Rupert went from being the fan who would be left behind by the Super League to one of the greedy old men encouraging it. Regardless of who the owner of a club is, it's the fans who keep it alive. And that's my argument on the back of a lot of what Andrea was saying as well. It's the fans that, that keep this going. They go to matches, they buy the merch. Do you call it merch? I don't know. Do you call it merch in sports? I just watch a lot of YouTubers and go to Comic-Cons and we call it merch there, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, merch. I think so. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> they bring business to local bars and pubs, and as we've seen from the Wrexham documentary, that can have a real positive impact on the local community, right? I love Wrexham. Oh, I, oh my God, that story, just, I loved it. I can't wait till the second season. Oh I, know, I know, I know. It's going to be so good. So let's talk about the Super League that Rupert wants to join. Now, this was seen in the last episode when, at this current time. That is the episode called International Break. And that's season three, episode 10. Oh, <laughs> oh, we only got two left. Um, but yeah, season, season three, episode 10, International Break, where Rupert wants to join the Super League and that betrays the very person that Rupert used to be because that's the kind of fan who would be left behind. To show this, I'm drawn from an article written for a website called News Decoder. Now, most of what I say next will be paraphrased from this article, but I do recommend reading the whole thing. It's the article, Greed No Match for Fans Fury as Football Super League Fails, and it's by John Mahaffney, and it was written on the 20th of May, 2021. And the Super League was to include most of the top-level teams across Europe, including Man United, Man City, Chelsea, Tottenham, and the top teams from the Spanish and Italian leagues. They would unite in an annual competition, which would include 20 teams. English fans came together to demonstrate against the league that would have no promotion or relegation, which we talked about earlier. 
promotion and relegation are a major part of the English Premier League and Scottish, but this article is focusing on, on the English Premier League. Uh, and the fans relish the drama caused by this. This is mostly because the structure creates opportunities for underdog teams to rise ab- amongst the ranks. And as Ted Lasso fans, I'm sure we can agree that everyone loves an underdog, right? Always. Always the underdog. An example of this is Leicester City's 2013-2014 season. They won the third division, then they won the second, then reaching the Premier League, there's a lot in between, but when they reached the Premier League, two seasons after that, they only went and won the whole fucking thing. I remember it at the time, it was everywhere, even as a non-football fan, it was everybody was rooting for them because like it was just insane that this happened. It was unbelievable. Imagine being one of the fans. Like it was exciting enough for somebody so who was cool. not a fan. But imagine being a fan that like watched that for like years and like the feeling must have been insane. So the fans regard the Super League to be a bunch of rich teams that would exclude the lower level clubs. And if they, if we had that, we wouldn't have had a situation like Leicester City. We wouldn't have had that rags to riches story and, you know, that opportunity for the fans and the local community of Leicester City to, to benefit from it. Like in the most recent episode of Ted Lasso, the owners who wanted the Super League weren't fans of the sport. They were only in it for the money and the power it would bring them. And there's a quote here from... A soccer historian Mike Kelly and he says at the heart of European football in fact football everywhere but in the US is the concept of promotion and relegation they utterly failed to display any understanding of the social roots of football that have existed in effect since 1888 when the football league was founded and then the second division with promotion and relegation was introduced they were happy to stamp on 130 years of history for what a concept no one wanted And in the episode International Break, Rebecca gives a wonderful speech, and I'm going to share a small section of it that I believe is spoken through Rebecca, but on behalf of football fans everywhere. Just because we own these teams doesn't mean they belong to us. I don't want to be a part of something that could possibly destroy this beautiful game because I would hate for all those little kids and grown-ups out there to ever lose access to that beautiful, passionate part of themselves. Like I was kind of saying about, you know, we're talking about this Italian league here, you just mentioned, you know, the Premier League and the things going on in, in um, your neck of the woods. And I feel like, again, like every, again, every league has its own things and their own little stories like that and teams that have come up out of nowhere. And it's just yeah. so, again, yeah, it's so interesting, right? And like, just mm-hmm. like I said, right, like actually making a joke, right? The way they they call it a miracle, right? Like I bet, and you know, they- Oh, they, like, I mean, that was a miracle. Like, it's a miracle, everybody was like, but it's like, never going to happen. And it did. And it does. Yeah. And it's just yeah. kind of, those stories are amazing. And I I agree. Like, even when I'm invested in a, in a World Cup for my teams, like, I love watching some of those teams that no one thinks is going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, something. those are my favorite teams to root for. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who's at the bottom of the list? Yeah, who's at the That's bottom? my team. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what it is. It must be something psychological, but like everybody loves an underdog. Yeah, because we all have felt that. We've all felt like the underdog. I think it's also interesting to this book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro, the miracle has already happened, Mm -hmm. right? The miracle is them going from C1 to B, which is the, the way that the Italian league works, which I absolutely appreciated the explanation of and made it very clear to me how then like, the British system more. <laughs> Funnily enough, I got I got to explain to Campbell the the leagues in Italy, and he put it in terms of the English ones for me to understand. So yeah, did the it's same perfect, thing. Perfect, right? Explain. But Joe shows up 
after this miracle has taken place in kind of a like, ooh, let's see what happens next. And what's interesting, because this is real life and not fiction, is that real life happens, mm-hmm. right? The players, some of them died. Yeah. There's a drug, sp- I mean, I don't know how common the drug smuggling is in the sports world, but there you go. Like that's something Or they're that doing happens. drugs. <laughs> yeah. And you, well, yeah. But you don't have that like big win, that big happily ever after at the end. And I think even if he had taken that anonymous player's advice and not gone with them to the last game, you still like they, yes, they stayed in, in the B. Yeah. It was a better sweet ending, right? But even, even without him knowing about the bribe and all of Mm -hmm. that, there's still not that like, and then they came back and won it all. And it makes me curious if that's maybe the hint. Hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, not to, not to be a down like no, a downer no, here, no, but, but no. I well, I think if you look at, I mean, the, so the English Premier League system, right? Um, you have this system where, as Ted was shocked by early in the series, you don't have a playoff to determine the winner. Richmond has already lost a lot of games this mm-hmm. season, and if you look at the top of the Premier League table this season. You can't win that without being consistently good through the season. So you could yeah. have Richmond winning something like one of the cups that bring in all of the, the teams, mm-hmm. right? But I'm not sure, based on what they've shown us, I, I don't think I have wins-loss records in mind, how how realistic at this point it would be for Richmond to win the whole fucking thing. Well, I think yeah. the only thing that gets them close is that time, and that's why Zava was brought in, to like be able to boost them and send them up the... Zava got them to total football, and total fo- football kept them going, right? But Ted yeah. himself did say the story might not always work out the way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. And you number know, four so... doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. going to keep going back to that. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, um, so that that's basically... Me, it's just I thought they handled that Super League thing really well. Like the whole, like I loved when she there were a bunch of kids and she was like, "Stop it, stop it! What are you doing?" One thing I I didn't notice myself. I've only watched the episode once so far. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Didn't turn into a kid too. Uh, a Khufu's handshaker guy. He didn't turn into a kid. I never even picked up on that. No, I didn't either. But I uh, people had had mentioned that online and i thought that was fascinating because he wasn't the problem yes he's still working class in a sense right because mm-hmm. he's working under a khufu and it also just further proves that between a khufu between jack between rupert like you don't like fuck the rich man <laughs> francis his name francis. is francis, francis. Yeah. there you go Time for another pause, Greyhounds. And what's that book by Trent called? Another recommendation of The Lasso Way by Smith Shh. John Donegan suggests A Year of Living Dangerously. Zhu underscore Delire suggests Diamond Dogs Da. What possibly else? The most atypical underdog story. Scroggins Design suggests The Good Sport by Trent Crim. Peterson underscore Chip suggests Crim's Football Tales. PJ Smith suggests let's get ready to crumble, as told by Trent Krim, and with a name like PJ, that's an excellent suggestion, if you know you know. E. Roosevelt 9 says they call them the Diamond Dogs. Laura Mayer says the Under Diamond Dogs. Now back to the podcast. So that's me, and Bex, it's your turn to shine. 
it's it's my time. I I want to talk about coaches. I could not get over the coach in this book. He just made me so angry. And I understand mm-hmm. we're getting a biased perspective from Joe McGinnis. It's his views on it. But he does have some interactions with some of the players who are like, well, now I don't have to play under this guy anymore. So, you know, one thing that really stood out to me was how the Castel de Sangro coach really approached his job or maybe didn't. I don't know. (laughs) Like I first thought about how I might compare him to Ted, for example, because they're both the head coach of their respective teams and they have very different styles. So maybe I could look at that. And then I was like, well, maybe he's more similar to Beard because of his silence or Roy because of his anger. And then I was like, well, what about strategy or lack thereof? Maybe I could do a comparison with Nate. And so that's when I realized total coaching. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. The four coaches of Richmond. And I'm keeping Nate in the conversation because he was crucial in getting the team promoted back into the Premier League in season two, right? He might not be there now, but they wouldn't be where they are if it wasn't for his role in that. I'll accept it. Thank you. (laughs) But the four of them together make the perfect coach. So I thought about how that, like these four coaches together compared to the coach from Castel di Sangro, his name was Osvaldo Giacconi. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation in Italian, but it works. Yeah, that's what I'm going with. My Scottish pronunciation doesn't do it justice. So, yeah, yours is better. I honestly think he had, at least the way he was portrayed in the book, had the worst of the four Richmond coaches. So, all of the Richmond coaches have strengths and weaknesses, and it's only together that they're able to get the job done. Mm-hmm. I see Jaconi as having all of the weaknesses, right? Again, from McGinnis's biased perspective, of course. He did not come across as the greatest coach. He was not, I think he was pretty shitty. <laughs> yeah. He was a defense coach. He was he wasn't really interested in trying anything else, was he? Yeah. And it's not just McGinnis, though, right? Like I said, we have lines from players about moving on or retiring and not having to play under Jaconi anymore. Not the best of the best. I thought, let's break this down. What are the Richmond coach's weaknesses? Ted a lack of understanding of the game, and he's a bit naive. A bit? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what was the one in the last episode that he was really naive about? That not, the actual, not the actual devil? Yeah, but that's. I think that's just him fucking around. I think that's yeah. that's him playing, like, he, he wants to get a reaction out of people. Yeah, he's so. playing the humble for, yeah. Okay, I'll give you that. Beard, his weakness is, he's not really a good communicator. Right. You don't ever see him sitting down with the players and being like, yeah, let's deal with this. Let's, you know, he's not he's not a chatty guy. And and I say a weakness in that if Beard were the head coach alone, it would not be a productive coaching strategy. Well, but I mean, his press conferences would be on point. Well, oh, I'm getting was- to that. <laughs> Roy lets anger get in his way. Really? I've never noticed. Mm. And Nathan let's ego get in his way, right? So those are kind of the the weaknesses that I see in each of them as individual coaches. As we see throughout the book, Jaconi has all of these characteristics. I mean, he's not nearly as naive as Ted when it comes to the game of football. Like he, he knows the rules and all of that. But at the same time, there seems to be things that he doesn't consider, right? He doesn't seem to think beyond the basics. 
kind of naively thinks that they can find success just doing the same thing. Like, let's just repeat the same and we'll get there. Not taking into account that like, hey, these are Serie B, B. I don't, I can't B, do this in B. English. I can't do this in English. Do, <laughs> I'm like, do it, do it in Spanish. That's what I was doing, but it was messing me up. So yeah. he, he doesn't really take into consideration how the Series B players are so different from the C1 players that they I mean, they had only barely been in C1 for a few years, right? I think, you know, he's least like Ted in terms of like these four. He has the least similarities to Ted, but his sort of whatever happens, happens approach to coaching leads to a lot of losses for the team. Jaconi is not really very approachable. This kind of reminds me a little bit of Beard, right? Beard knows what he's talking about. He's willing to put the work in. But his silent and stoic demeanor do not make him someone that, it seems to me anyway, many of the players would approach, right? That's not Beard's role. I immediately think of Jamie saying to Beard, I don't know how to talk to you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? But it's okay because it's not Beard's role. And he's not the only coach, so it it works. But, you know, it's the truth. He's not the guy that's going to bring out the team's empathetic side. And Jaconi is definitely not very approachable. I mean, like I said, to be fair, McGinnis was a loud, abrasive, typical white American male. But Jaconi was often, I, you know, maybe standoffish is probably the nicest way I can put it. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, at worst, Jaconi is angry and violent and maybe even comes across as intimidating. Mm-hmm. This reminds me of the weakness of Roy Kent. When his anger gets in his way, he's not someone that people can or should, in my opinion, learn from. Mm-hmm. Jaconi in McGinnis's book is depicted as intimidating, closed off, and unapproachable. Of course, that doesn't stop McGinnis from trying. Again, something about being a straight white American male from like trying to get through to him, but he never gets far with that. And the last thing I'll mention about Jaconi is in regards to his strategy and his ego, or maybe perhaps his lack of strategy, right? Yeah, no lack of ego though. He has that. Yeah, definite big ego. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. so this is like kind of like one side like Nate, the other side not, you know? Mm -hmm. Jaconi's not open to other approaches. He's not strategic in who he plays where. He doesn't watch where certain players have strengths or when a team might exploit their weaknesses. But he's always taking credit for their wins. Yep. Always. Right? He's always shown as braggadocious when they win, but passing the blame when they lose. And this ego portion of it reminds me a bit of Nate. Although Nate does have the strategy, so... (laughs) I could absolutely, it would be absolutely in character if in the book Jaconi had, for example, a dummy line, right? (laughs) Where he made someone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? Yes, no, exactly. Go stand on the dummy line. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I don't like talk too badly, talking too badly about our coaches, our Richmond staff here. So I want to move on to talking about these four. And if I were to sum up the strengths of the AFC Richmond coach, staff it would be as follows empathy history strategy and experience Ooh, i'm so proud of myself for that i really like that yeah you know ted's the one he's got empathy and understanding he can connect with the players 
Beard has knowledge of the history of the game, which is something that he's still continually learning. We always see him engaging in this, but we also understand that he knew about this from Amsterdam and so on. Like he's he wasn't unaware going in the way Ted was, but he's also there to balance Ted. That's a crucial element of Beard's character. Nate, A plus strategy and understanding of the game. And and he's worked his butt off for that, right? Yeah, his dad calls him a genius, but like what he hyper fixated on was this game and and like how to fully know it and understand it. And then Roy, you know, his experience in the game is his strength. Because like Roy in particular, like not only did he play the game when none of the other coaches have, but he very recently played the game. So he's not like, oh, back in my day it was this way. You know, he yeah. he's very fresh. And I think we need all four of these pieces to make it work. This is what gets the team back into the Premier League at the end of season two. And missing those pieces at the start of season three is part of their struggle. Ted is distracted. Nate isn't there. Roy is trying to fill in the strategy role, but that's not his strength. Mm -hmm. And Beard is still Beard, but without the rest of the puzzle pieces, he flounders. And that's something we see in his press conference, right? And he's sort of fixating on Nate a bit as well, which is probably clouded in his judgment, because look at how they ended mm -hmm. up showing the players the video of Nate ripping up the sign, and it backfired on them spectacularly. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so... Like that approach, press conferences that go off the rails, these kind of things. Can we just things. take a minute to talk about that? <laughs> that was so phenomenal. That is such a powerful piece of comedy. I watched, I had to pause and rewind and watch because I was laughing so hard. I just love, <laughs> especially when he comes back up and Higgins is trying to cover his face on the window. Like, yes. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> and Brendan Hunt just has those eyes that just like, Wild eyes. He's got those wild, wild eyes. eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that um one thing about Beard I think about too, and that's so much as coaching, but like I feel like even Jane him and Jane, one of the things that they have is they almost positively reinforce each other's negative things. They enable each other, right? They totally yeah. enable each other, you know, and like the way that like you're right, like sometimes Beard overfix like I feel like yeah, I feel like he has overfixated on Nate completely. Mm -hmm. And Jane is just there like, yep, like, let's, you know, the axe throwing, like, let's go. Like, let, you know, mm -hmm. she just encourages him. And Taz, yeah. right. He's like, you know, you need to let this go. Like, you this is a non-Schreidenfreuder zone after all, right? Yeah. We've been told that before. You yeah. don't celebrate other people's misfortune, but Beard mm -hmm. didn't learn. Yeah. And that's why he and Ted make a great team. And mm -hmm. Ted Lasso is about team, right? It's about working together and everyone playing their role. But at the same time, also being willing and able to fill the shoes of others when they're needed, right? That's why we get total football. But with only one coach, you have no one to balance you out, no one to temper you or fill in your weaknesses. And that's why I think the Ted Lasso coaching staff really works when the real life experiences of this Jaconi guy, like at least through the lens of Joe McGinnis, it doesn't work, right? Sure, they managed to scrape by and stay in Series B for another year. But I mean, I don't know what happened after that. I imagine at some point they, they were re-relegated. They got he got they got rid of like 14 players or something within two weeks of the, the last game, I think. I, I think they're currently playing a lot about five divisions lower than yeah. So. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Maybe with a, a total coaching approach, they might have more success. 
Mm-hmm. Or an owner who gave a semblance of a shit, probably. Like, it comes down, doesn't it, from the top? So. It sure does. It sure does. Yeah. Let's take a pause, Greyhounds. Friend of the podcast, Chris Yeh, says the athlete or team where he'd want backstage access to is Tim Duncan, the San Antonio Spurs 2014. And while you might think that I'd want access to a Laker team, every single one of those teams has had tell-all books written about them. Tim Duncan is Roy-like in his desire to hide away, though with much less swearing. And hearing the real story of the Spurs come back from a heartbreaking loss in 2013 to win their final championship in 2014 would be really interesting. Thanks for that, Chris. If you'd like to join in the conversation, send us a tweet to at Beards Book Club or send us an email to coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, back to the podcast. So there was something that I wanted to bring up that struck me in the book that I didn't think really fit in anywhere else. So I just want to take a, a quick minute on this because when I saw it in the book and McGinnis's response to it, I just, I, just, I, I thought that was really interesting in the context of this season. So at one point, Jaconi, being a terrible coach, is verbally abusing a player and he does that quite extensively. And McGinnis notes that this particular verbal abuse towards this player uses a lot of homophobic slurs and abuse. And so McGinnis, I'm quoting him, I had no idea what this player's sexual orientation might be, though I presumed that the majority of players would have known if it was different from theirs. Oh, my sweet summer child. And that's a very 90s response, right? Yeah, that's a very straight man response. Like, Well, and that's the thing. And I, I think that's why, again, we come back to why it's so great that Ted Lasso has a diverse representation in the writer's room because uh, oh my god mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that is an amazing blind spot it is just an astonishing blind spot i also had another thing that kind of didn't tie in with anything but i just really wanted to like marcella's restaurant there and and just the idea of like this gathering place for the team but also like you know fans and so like people would that was like the home away from home oh she's the may she is absolutely the may right and even though we don't see the players in the crown and anchor too often they do come in on occasion and she always like they're they're a priority Mm -hmm. but it is sort of a home away from home for uh ted like uh, does he cook or does he just eat fish and chips every night (laughs) lasagna peanut butter well he does have he does have day old pasta water on on offer at one point but but yeah i loved i love that element that that sort of like home away from home piece yeah yeah we also had an interpreter called barbara which i thought yes. was interesting considering in episode one barbara is sort of keely's interpreter to financial <laughs> goings on in a business so i just pictured barbara whenever i read that <laughs> Well, and now we have Barbara who likes clothes that tell the truth. I I, oh my God, I died when she said that. I was like, that is the best line ever. Barbara and Kaylee are autism and ADHD in the flesh. And I love every second of it. Like Barbara is brilliant. I adore her. Oh my God. There's only two episodes left, guys. Oh, don't. And by the time this drops, there'll only be one. Oh my God. As sad as that is. Dozens and dozens and dozens of books. We have so many books. Would you like to hear about our next book? Yes. What are we doing? Would we? <laughs> I don't want the thing open. Hold on. <laughs> 
as usual, I'm never ready for this part. Okay. <laughs> our, our next book is going to be Kafka on the Shore by Murakami, which we saw Jade reading in season three. I didn't make a mark in an episode. It's um, nine, I think. Yeah. Nine, yeah. But it's the I first time it. we see a woman physically reading, reading a book. Holding a book, yeah. There's your blind spot, Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but we asked and we did receive. So. Mm. And the season is not finished yet. That's true. We're just going to have a book club with Rebecca and Keely and Jade and May and everyone's just going to be reading a book. <laughs> that just made me think. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Rebecca, Keely, Jade, May. What about Dr. Sharon? Who are we? Well, she's not in this season. Yeah, so, that's but true, yes. that's true. Um, not really, anyway. Say it again, Re Rebecca Keeley. Jade be and May. You want to be Barbara? I okay. be Barbara. Yeah, I don't think I'm any of those ladies. <laughs> I'm definitely not good enough to be Keeley or Rebecca. Or Rebecca or Sharon. Yeah. Or... No, we're all good enough. No, yeah, right. I'm sorry. Well, I'll I'll take Rebecca based on height. Yeah, you there can you pull go. Rebecca off. You can pull Rebecca off. And honestly, ADHD, Michaela, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And then I yeah. think Andrea's the no nonsense May. Yeah, I'm the May. Like, like I'm the yeah. Sophia, I'm the May. And, yeah. and I'll be Jade. It's short yeah. for Jaden. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> She's so dry. I love her so much. Yeah, like, I love Jay. I wish I wish I had that. Yeah, he's like, am I an idiot? And she's like, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> Can I add the the line in the most recent episode where she invites him to Poland and says, "You can help my family screw in light bulbs," and he's like, oh. "That's funny." And she says, "Why is that funny?" And that's always the perfect response to someone who has made a horrible racist joke, but they just twisted it one like turn further in this, like a mm -hmm. like a bulb. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was a good one, that, and that's a great response when someone ever says something like that. It's Absolutely, like, why yeah. is that funny? I don't get it. <laughs> Explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> All right. So anyway, that's the book we're covering. There we go. Thanks very much, Greyhounds, for joining us, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at Coach Beards Book Club at gmail.com subscribe to us on spotify stitcher apple podcast or wherever else you get your podcasts share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review